Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Shelby. Hey, Austin. You ready to talk about some Dragon Age? I guess so. <laughs> All right. Well, today we continue our Countries of Theta series, which we come with a very, very requested topic today. Drum roll. Are you going to tell him? Oh, I thought you were going to tell him. <laughs> oh, just anticlimactic drum roll. Why don't you tell him? Okay, well, we are talking about the dwarves today, and this is going to be another two-part episode, maybe three, but probably two parts, and today we're talking about Orzammar. Woohoo! Well, where do we even begin with That's fair. I um, have a few fun facts, as I always do, so let's just start there. Um, so, Orzammar... I think in the beginning of Dragon Age Origins, when we go to Orzammar, um, I think there is either a codex or a conversation where we find out that Orzammar is the only city in the Dwarven Empire that's left. Um, but that's actually not true that we find out that later, um, I think in a codex. Again, I'm not really sure where we found out all this lore, um, but you find it out throughout the game. So. Orzammar is the biggest, most known dwarven city that's left. But there's also Cal Shirok. Cal Shirok is to the far, far, far opposite side of Thedas um, than Orzammar is. Cal Shirok lies under Tevinter. So you can imagine Orzammar is on the border kind of of Orle and Ferelden, and then Cal Shirok is on the totally opposite side. So they don't have any contact. Um, and we'll talk more about Kyle Shrock next week, but Orzammar really thinks that they're the only ones. Um, and I think personally, I think that gives them a little bit of a superiority complex. Um, but 
Orzammar is one of two cities left in the Dwarven Empire, and it is the capital of the empire. I mean, even though the empire doesn't really exist anymore, but it was the capital back when um, the empire was great. So Orzammar is ruled by a king and a group of nobles who are referred to as the assembly. And we get to determine all of this kind of stuff throughout the course of um, Dragon Age Origins. You know, you get to kind of choose which king you're going to support. And you get to meet some of these nobles. You can maybe convince some of them by doing quests. So we get to see all this in Origins. And if you haven't played Origins, I really, really recommend it. Not just because it's my favorite game, but because you get so much lore, especially about the dwarves. So if this is a subject you're interested in, you should definitely play through Origins. Anyways, my last fun fact is that Orzammar is a great tag, not just a regular tag. Um, and so that means that Orzammar is significantly larger than the other tags would have been. It's in a centralized location, and it was just a main center of the Dwarven Empire. So the other great tags um, that we know of include Cal Shirok and Cal Haral. We'll talk about both of those later. Um, but there were nine other great tags that were considered, you know, a great tag um, other than these three. So that means there were 12 in total. Um, and we don't know the names of all of those, but we do know that that's how many existed. So that is a little bit about uh, my brief overview of Orzammar. It's so interesting because this is the one part of like Dragon Age, I feel, besides other than like humans, but that Bioware really leans into the fantasy trope of this race of dwarves because mm -hmm. they, from them being underground, but if you look at other fantasy genres, I'm drawing mainly from Lord of the Rings and then the Inheritance Cycle, but in both of those, the dwarves' empire is a shell of what it once was. That's true. And like, I haven't read most of a lot of the books of Lord of the Rings, which I know that there is a good like section of, you know, dwarven cities, but in really the places that you go in the characters is you go to Moria mm -hmm. as it's been ransacked and it's emptied and everyone's been killed by goblins and orcs. And you also go to wherever they go at the end of the Hobbit movies um, where Schmog is. Um, and that's also just inhabited by a dragon. Like they've been pushed out of these lands and it just kind of like, it puts the dwarves in kind of this like displacement. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I think Bioware does interesting is instead of this displacement that happens, the dwarves kind of retreat into themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of just strengthen their whatever it is to be a dwarf in their underground city and have very little communication with the outside world, which is kind of what happens in the inheritance cycle. Um, so much that humans in the inheritance cycle think dwarfs are a myth because they've never seen. Them. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I definitely agree with you. It's kind of like 
they thought about this whole really interesting and unique backstory for the elves and the Kunari and just kind of copy-pasted humans and dwarves. <laughs> Which is fine. Um, I mean, this is the world we live in. This is what we've been given. So, um, let's talk about the ancient history. Yeah. Let's... Okay, so last week when we talked about Navarra, we were talking about, oh, this country's so new, like, we're not, we're barely even in the ancient age, um, all this stuff. Well, <laughs> opposite is happening today. We are going back pretty far. So, at, uh, minus 1170 ancient, um, King Endrin Stonehammer moved the capital of the Dwarven Empire to Orzammar from Cal Shirak. So, he did this for a couple reasons. First, this is kind of important backstory. Um, Orzammar before this was like the home of the mining caste and the smith caste families. Like that was the people that lived in Orzammar were miners and they were blacksmiths. But in Kalsharak, it was mostly nobles, like noble families lived in Kalsharak. So you have this kind of, um, not conflict, but like divergence almost between the two groups of dwarves. So he moved to the capital. One of the reasons why is so that he could like kind of preside more directly over like the commercial side of dwarven life because that's, you know, that was one of the big ways that they kept this thing afloat um, through mining Lyrium, of course, and through crafting. So, um, and in, in addition to that, because of the turmoil in the Taventer Imperium following the death of that Archon, um, there was just a lot of upheaval. So they moved the capital of Orz or of the Dwarven Empire to Orzammar, and this is a big deal. Cal Shirak is obviously offended. Orzammar is obviously very excited um but this move kind of foreshadows I think or maybe not even foreshadows it's almost like oh what's the word it's in psychology when you're like you're already determining the past self-fulfilling prophecy yes yes it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost because it's like okay well we're gonna abandon Kalsharak because it's not serving us right now. Let's go to Orzammar because they're the center of trade. They're the center of all of our, you know, capitalistic things that make us money. So they move the capital. That's a big deal. Um, and they, you know, start the construction of several construction projects in the city, such as some of our favorite places like the Proving Grounds and, um, or at least the ex expansion of them and like Stonehammer Hall and just all these kind of like big things that we see in Origins. Right. Yeah. I've got a lot of thoughts. Already? Just on that one paragraph. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So okay. the first thing that I want to talk about is just kind of like, it's kind of building on the whole countries of Theta series and really like the major players of the ancient age. Because while the Alamari and the Syrian are big players, they're not, I wouldn't say they're the major players of the ancient age. 
So, like, these cities or whatever that you have in the ancient age, or or you've got Taventer, yeah. the oldest human the empire, budding out in the ancient age. Obviously, the dwarves are something probably in relation to this lyrium trade because Taventer is building itself upon mages. Right. And the dwarves, to, to this day, are the ones who know the secrets of mining lyrium. Right. Um... Which the mage, which the Taventer mages would need for um, their magic, and then Arlathon is the other major player in the ancient age, and so you have you do have the three um, the three players of you know elves, humans, and dwarfs. Maybe not as we know them in Dragon Age because we haven't been to Taventer yet, but there are there, and they're all kind of centered in the Taventer area. So like mm-hmm. the capital was. The capital was Kalsharak before they moved it. Arlathon, I believe, is to the west, no, east of Tevinter. Oh, I think it's the west Arlath- of Tevinter. Because the Arlathon Forest? Yeah. Right? That's in Te- that's near Tevinter, is it not? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and so these are the major players. So to me, like, uh, King Stonehammer, his move to move to Orzammar is a huge like political power because he I think at this point he probably realizes because by 170 ancient um I think the fall of Arlathon has happened no 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 it's Uh, not 170 it's 1170 oh 1170 okay um yeah 1170 yeah I mean, I think it's 2,500 um, when Arlathan is built. Yeah. So I'm assuming that at some point, either Arlathan has fallen or it is about to fall. And I'll look back through our timeline to double check that and make sure. I'm looking up um, right now. Okay. But anyway, I'll keep my point. So I think this is either a point where he is either witnessed the fall of the elves or it's happening and he decides okay well we will hold some sway if we keep our secrets of lyrium with Taventer. they will be dependent on us but let's move our seat of power as far away as we can get right and put actual you know geographical distance between us and venrathis yeah i don't disagree with that at all and so I think one of the reasons that I think that really they do survive and have even have Orzammar at all is because Stone, Stone, King Stonehammer moves them there mm-hmm. to fortify it. And then it's too much of it. By the time Taventer would move on Orzammar, they're dealing with Andrasse's Rebellion. Right. Anyway, that was just my thought of like how these all just kind of like painting a bigger picture of the ancient age because that's it kind of it's an age we know a lot about but it's a lot of speculation yeah yeah it, it's a lot of speculation i think um these next couple episodes are just going to be a little bit more of that which is fine um so, yeah. but that was my main purpose there was just kind of like paint this picture of what the ancient age right well, let's move a little bit into what we always talk about in every single episode. <laughs> the blight? <laughs> the first blight, specifically. Okay. 
But you can't talk about the dwarves without talking about I know, the I know, spawn. I know, I know, I know. So, and we're not gonna, we're not gonna spend a ton of time here because we, we know what happens, right? Like, the, the dark spawn, the dark spawn take over. Like, that's what happens. But like we've talked about in every other episode so far, the first blight is devastating. And that's, that's not truer anywhere other than the Dwarven Empire, other than Orzammar, right? Um, so during the first blight, the Dwarven Empire is decimated. Like, they're the front lines. Um, they're dealing with this way before the surface is dealing with this. And I don't have the specific dates. I'm not sure the specific dates even really exist. Um, but the Dwarven Empire starts crumbling. Orzammar basically shuts itself off from everyone else um, in the Empire, which, which kind of screws everyone. Um, and we will dig into a little bit more of that history next week. Um, but yeah, the, the first blight is devastating and they kind of, they, they kind of keep the empire afloat after the first blight, but like it's crumbling, you know, like they're trying really hard, but every time they go to rebuild, it just like kind of turns to dust, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a conversation in Origins you can have with either some noble or a legion of the dead member when you talk about like your need for the dark spawn and the legion of the dead is basically like you know we fight dark spawn all the time like this is what right. we do and there's like this feeling of like when you all push back your blight guess where the dark spawn go they come to the dwarves right, right. and like that was going to be my next point because like whenever we've talked about Whenever we've talked about the other blights in our other episodes, it's usually we have a very specific or clear end date. There's usually a final battle, and we can usually tell you which Grey Warden killed the Archdemon and the Darkspawn dissipated in the next year or so. Usually that's how it goes, but we can't do that in this because the Darkspawn dissipate from the sur sur surface and then they go back down underground and Orzammar and the rest of these tags at that point are still dealing with this. It's an ever-present threat. I think there's nothing that illustrates this more clearly than in Dragon Age Origins. Um, I, I can't remember when it happens, but it may be just a random kind of scene. But whenever you leave Orzammar and go into the Deep Roads... At times, there will be just like a group of darkspawn right outside that entrance to the deep roads um, that you then fight. And that's so clear to me. Like it's right there. It's right there. Like you're at the gates of Orzammar. You're right next to the assembly. You're right next to um, where they keep the memories. Like it's, it's right there. Um, and it's just very clear to me that okay, this is an ever-present threat. Like, this is not some ambiguous, far-off thing. Like, this is something that they deal with every single day of their lives. Yeah. So, in the first Blight, 
you know, they try and they try and they, they try as much as they can to fight the dark spawn. Um, and despite any victory they had, um, it just wasn't enough. So by minus 15 ancient, the kingdom of Orzammar assumed that they were the last ones standing, even though we know that they were not, they assumed that. So they basically shut everything down, acted as if they're the only ones. It's over. They knew that the tags surrounding Orzammar fell very easily um, to the dark spawn. Um, so they just assumed that that's what happened everywhere else. And that's really when it started the kind of downhill turn to where we're at today. And that's for a lot of different reasons. First, the warrior cast dwindles with every generation, which makes total sense, you know? Right. As more and more of the able-bodied warriors go out to fight Darkspawn, more of them are going to die against the Darkspawn. And there's only so much repopulation you can be doing when you live underground, when there's a limited amount of food, when there's a limited amount of space and you're in the middle of a war, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the point of like, I know I'm jumping just a little bit ahead, just really brief, but like that's Balin's whole point. Right. Is that we have to change. We have to reform and open some kind of contact with the surface world because this is not what we're doing is not it's, sustainable. It's not sustainable, people. exactly. And I think it would be totally different if they didn't have all of these kind of rules and regulations surrounding their nobility. And we'll talk about this yeah. a little bit later, but you know, when you're casting out all these people out of their families, out of their castes for, you know, whatever, all the different rules they have, it's like, well, you're casting out able-bodied people, you know? Who's going to go fight the dark spawn if you're casting out a bunch of people? I, it, you know, it's just a numbers game that does not make sense to me. Um, but anyways, so with each generation, more and more of the deep roads has to be sealed. And we see that, again, throughout the games. Um, and as more and more of the deep roads are sealed, more and more tags are lost forever, um, which means, you know, the Dwarven Empire continues to be diminished. But there is one bright, shining spot um, that the Dwarves, for a long time, um, had hope in, had faith in, and that is the Golems. So in right. minus... 255, the Paragon Keratin, he makes the first Golem. And we know that a Golem is a giant soldier of like living stone and metal and all this stuff. And like, it's super powerful. So with Keratin's Golems, the Dwarves began to retake some of the lost lands, which is awesome. Um, but you know, after like five or six years of like constantly creating more and more golems, Keridan and his Anvil of the Void vanished without a trace. And with them, the process of manufacturing golems also disappeared. So if you haven't played Origins, this is a main quest in the game. We find out what yeah. happened to Keridan. We um, 
find out what happened to the golems. We find out what the golems are made out of. And this is a major spoiler alert. We're not going to get into the whole quest, but golems basically are made from people. Like you have to have a soul to make a golem. So they're kind of like horcruxes. Kind of. Yeah, except you're putting someone else's soul into right, the object as opposed right, to your own. Right. But it is it also an object? Like a golem is living, you know? Um, right. But it is a but little is bit But is it similar. living before the soul comes into it? I don't know. Right, I don't see, know. These are the questions. We could debate that for like hours. Yeah. But anyway, so we won't get into this quest. I think most people probably know it um, anyways, but... Because they lost the process of making golems, you know, this kind of goes back into this cycle where they have a win and then they lose, they lose to the dark spawn and then so on and so forth. Like it's just kind of an eternal um, push and pull between the dwarves and the dark spawn. So, you know, like the biggest existential fear for the dwarves is that they're going to become extinct because of the dark spawn one day. Um, and I think that's a very fair fear. I mean, and you really see that in their culture because like their supreme fighting force against the dark spawn is called the Legion of the dead. Because when you join it, you're basically signing over that. Like I'm basically signing my death right now. Right. All right. So that's ancient history. Yes. What about, Let's get into a little bit of the modern history, which I know we're not going to get big into because we experience a good deal of it yeah. in the game. Yeah, but there are a few things I want to talk about. Um, first is Lyrium. Like, I just don't think the, that Orzammar could even exist anymore without the sale of Lyrium. Um, they're the only ones, like Orzammar, the official... Government capacities are the only ones that are allowed to sell lyrium outside of Orzammar. And they're only, they only sell it to the Chantry until Inquisition. Um, so that, that's a huge deal. That's a huge profit for them. Um, so that's super important. But in Tevinter, uh, fun fact, it's been known that lyrium can command a higher price point than a diamond. Makes sense. It Yes, makes sense. But dwarves actually, like we talk about, this is their main source of income, but they actually sell very little of their lyrium to the surface, giving a greater portion of what they mine to their own smith cast, who use it in the forging of all of their um, dwarven weapons and armor and runes and all of that stuff. So... Again, like I said, what lyrium is sold to the surface only goes through the Chantry, and then they strictly control that supply. So the Chantry then dispenses the lyrium to Templars, who make use of it in, you know, fighting blood mages and stuff, and to the Circle, who obviously may just use it. So in that's a big part. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. No, that's good. In Inquisition, um, is it Josephine who like negotiates the lyrium trade between Orzammar and the Inquisition? I would assume so. She's the only one that makes sense I mean, to do that. I mean, it makes sense. I'd have to go look. I think because there are, there is a lot of war table operations that deal with Orzammar. 
Like, if you're wondering what the dwarves are doing during the events of Inquisition, you look at these war table operations. Yeah. Um, there's there, a lot of them. Yeah, and there there's a lot of other dwarven war table missions in the other side of the map over by Tevinter, which we'll get into next week as well. Yes. Um, and so, which it, the argument I would probably use if I was talking to him is like, you sell to the Chantry. The Chantry is in disarray. We're basically an arm of the Chantry. So you're just selling to the same people. Right, right, right. Um, but Lyrium, as you know, that's a huge part of modern how modern dwarves interact with the surface um and then i also you know they've got a major role in the the events of the fifth blight right like they send you know groups um to help fight the blight and defeat the demon along with the to defeat the arch demon along with the hero of ferelden so that's that's a major player as well that's significant but what I really want to talk about right now for the next couple of minutes is about their culture. Um, yeah. And I really wanted to focus and talk about class and like that kind of interplay because there's nowhere else that I think there's nowhere else that um, the divide between the nobility and the regular person is as stark. And yeah, we can talk about Orlay and we can talk about Taventer all we want to, but I still think that the division between the nobility and the regular people of the dwarves is way more of a stark divide than any of the human nations. In Taventer, like, there's an ability, like, no, you might not be able to move yourself into the magisterium, mm -hmm. but you can navigate yourself among the other classes within Tevinter. Yeah. Their names are escaping me right now, but, like, mm -hmm. the other, like, lesser magic classes, like, if you're, you know, basically one of the, if you're a child whose parents are non-magical and you're born with magic, you immediately rise in status. Right, uh, and like there's the dis dis there's the distinction between the magisters, and then there's like the other mages who are part of it. Like, right. so if you could work yourself up and become one of those mages, you might not become the archon, you might not become an official magister, but maybe your child could, maybe your grandchild could. I don't think the same can be said of the dwarves. Right, and no, it because so I just finished. When I did my last playthrough of Origins, I was a dwarf. Mm -hmm. And if you play... So if you do the noble background, you're obviously a part of the noble cast. And we'll get through the casts in a minute. But if you play the commoner, you're castless. Which is, like, the biggest shame you could ever yeah. have in Orzammar. And only the assembly can move your class. Wow. Your cast. So do they do that for the commoner origin? Yes. So after the events of origin, you are granted membership into the warrior cast and made a paragon. Right. Um, which I think is annoying, but. Why do you think that's annoying? I think it would be really just... meaningful that a castless person could become a paragon. Right. I. That's why I think that that is one of the reasons that they make, they give you a cast 
in the warrior is because they oh, right. there's no denying what you've done or feats worthy of a paragon but they don't want to make a cast list of paragon so they make you so they give you they a give, nobility. they give you one yeah, yeah that's fair that's that that is annoying um but i mean like 90% of the quests you do in, or, in 90? Origins. But seriously, like 90% of these quests are about, oh, my dad kicked me out of our cast, of our family, because I had a baby with someone he didn't approve of, or... Or no, and like, that's another thing is like, it's traced for like, even if, if you are a noble woman who, you know, gets impregnated by a castless person, your baby is castless. Right. Which is interesting. Um, but yeah, so I think this, this whole class issue is really a defining factor of the dwarves. And I, I mean, you really see it in like every dwarf we meet almost like, Varric and Bartrand don't talk about it in this way, but like, why else are they fighting and fighting and fighting so hard to become wealthy um, in the Deep Roads expedition, to have status in Kirkwall? Because they got kicked out of Orzammar, so they want to make something of themselves. I think that urge to, okay, I want to be the best that I can be and work toward this goal, whether or not it's attainable, is very central to dwarven culture. Right. Um, and so, just before we get any more of, like, talking mm -hmm. about it, let's talk about what are the castes in dwarven culture. Like, what, there's three, I believe, or four. Okay, why don't you tell me about them? So, you, obviously, at the top is the noble caste. Um where you know the royal like the assembly and all those they're part of the noble caste then there's two kind of like what i would call like a middle class um which are the merchant caste and the um warrior caste and then uh and the smith class caste i think yes smith i'll double check that um and then castless is at the right. Um, but I think it's interesting that the caste system that they put together is based on what Orzammar provides to the rest of Thetis. Mm. Other than the noble caste, like smithing. Smithing might be included in the merchant caste. No, uh, they're different. They're different. Okay, okay. But like smithing trade right and then they're warriors like right it's very much strikes me about like orzammar and the dwarves have at least well i guess we'll talk about maybe if kalsharak will learn next week if they have a similar caste system or not um but in orzammar it's very much this thing about like okay these are what we're known for these are what they're good at this is what we can do right and like i think varick sometimes has a comment either with bethany or something where he says like yeah not all dwarves are you know smiths or you know merchants or warriors or something like that and you have a 
I believe anyone of any cast can join the same ship. Mm, no. Or are they their own cast? No, they're not their own. But why do you think a cast list could join the shape rit? Well, I'm not including the cast list. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I don't know the answer to that question then. Yeah. Um, and so, like, the important things, the important, it tells you a lot of, like, what Orzammar views as important, which is their nobility, obviously, their trade, their craft, and their, and their lyrium, And their lyrium. And their lyrium. And then there is an added, like, if you don't want to be involved in all of that, you can do the sacred duty of preserving what what's what we were and right. the knowledge of our history. Right. Yeah. But anyway, that being so like because of this strong caste system and the strong sense of identity, I think that one of the dwarves and elves do have a lot of kinship in that they both come from fallen empires but i think what really separates the dwarves from the elves other than like the obvious height difference is um the sense of identity like and the sense of history dwarves are very very strong put in that we are dwarves right but also the elves, like, they don't have right. any of what the dwarves still... The dwarves can still go and say, okay, this is what it used to be like. The elves, they don't even know what it used to be like. Right. And so, like, that's that's one of the big, like, distinctions, yeah. I feel, in between those groups. And, like, that is definitely a factor that the dwarves know their history, so it creates a stronger sense of identity. So this sense of, like, caste and identity of the dwarves plays strongly in how they interact with the service world. Right. Yeah. Well, let's move into our middle section. All right. Yeah, let's do that. And then we'll come back and finish out the episode and get to our side character. Yeah. All right. All right. So here's the middle part of the show where we uh, let you know what's going on with the show the first thing I, we want to remind you all of is that we did start a Patreon. We talked about it in detail in last week's episode. Uh, the different tiers you can join there. You can contribute anywhere from $5 all the way up to, if you really want to be really generous, $100. Um, and there are different rewards and benefits you can get from each tier. Um, if you feel so led, if you want to contribute to that we would greatly appreciate it um, you can find the link in our episode description as well as the link to the robots radio discord um, and if you don't feel like you can support us financially in a monetary way um, we love the listens we love the downloads we love getting reviews on apple Podcasts is a great way to support our podcast and i believe Speaking of reviews, we do have a new review to read today. Yes, we do. Um, this one is from Courier7, and he says, Love this podcast. This podcast is very fun and very informative. I just recently decided to start listening, and I'm really enjoying the lore of the Dragon Age universe very much. Awesome. Awesome. 
thank you so much, Courier7, for your review. Um, all right, you want to get back into it, Shelby? Yes. All right, let's go. Okay, so we talked about, in the first half, about um, all of the tags that have fallen. We are going to talk about... Like seven of those in the next two weeks. So today I'm just going to talk about two or three. So there is first Idukin Tig. And Idukin Tig was once home to the powerful house Idukin, who is, you know, the father, that house of uh, the potential King Balin. Um, but this Tig has been lost to the Darkspawn and. You can actually go to this area in the Dwarf Noble Origin. It's actually called the Ruined Tig, not the Idukin Tig. But you can go to this one. I believe that... I don't want to spoil it for you because you said you wanted to play it. Uh-huh. But I believe there is... You do know it's the Idukin Tig. It might not be called uh, Yeah, that. I think you do. I think you do know. Yeah. Like your spot, uh, King Idukin... And even Balin or your other brother, they all say, like, oh, it's our tag. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and then the next one is Amgrak. I think I'm pronouncing that one correctly. But Amgrak was once a forge tag where the smiths sought researching and, like, they wanted to replicate and improve Keratin's work on the golems. So they were really trying to, like, alter and study the existing golems. But right. contact with this tag was lost under mysterious circumstances. And the research that happened in this tag was led by a Tevinter mage known as Nerida and an unnamed dwarven noble. So, we find out all of this information in Dragon Age Origins DLC, The Golems of Amgrak. And so, you go to this, you go to this, um, tag in that DLC. Okay, the next one. Do I, should I do two more or one more? Um, let's just do one more. And why don't we do Ortan Tag? Oh, no, let's do two more because we should do Ortan and Bonamar. Okay. Okay, so the next one is Bonamar, which is also known as the City of the Dead. Um, and it is the headquarters of the Legion of the Dead, or at least it was. This fortress has been lost and claimed and lost again and reclaimed and lost again so many times that the Shaperit literally can't even track them all. Like, that's not an exaggeration. They cannot wow. track how many times it's been lost and reclaimed. But it was permanently lost in 913 Dragon. So it's now called the Dead Trenches. And it was originally designed by Caradin. Um, but this is the area in Origins. We can't go to Bonamar, but we walk by it. So when you're going into the Deep Roads for the final time to find Bronca, um, you encounter the Legion of the Dead, and they're all just, like, kind of standing in a line, like, ready to fight the Darkspawn that are coming. And they're standing in front of the gate and door and big thing behind them. That's right. the entrance to Bonamar. Um so this is kind of a sacred space, really, I think. 
especially for the Legion, um, but just for the dwarves in general, there's a lot of um, side banter about, oh, I can't believe the Darkspawn are in there, you know, in, in this place that's so meaningful kind of stuff. So this one is a big loss, a big loss. I mean, it's the last tie that's lost, really, like permanently, I guess, because 913, 913 Dragon is just a couple years before the events of the AO. Yeah, it's just like two decades, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Ortan Tig. So um, this one is another lost tag that's very close to Orzammar, and um, you go through it to get to Bronca again, as several of these were. But this one is also a quest, and you can meet a girl named Orta in the Shaperit, and she begs you to help her find proof of her noble heritage so that she can be, she and her family can be restored to nobility status. And you're kind of like, okay, whatever. Um, and she's like, yeah, I know my name is Orta Ortan. Like that, like that's crazy. Um, but she, she basically begs you to help her and you can find evidence. And then, you know, you take it back to the shaper and she becomes a noble again. Um, and I think they, like, lead an expedition there to, like, uncover some artifacts and stuff. Um, but those are the four tags that we're going to talk about this week. And next week we'll talk about three. Well, um, so we're going into our side character. And this side character is also a side quest that you can get in Orzammar when you go there to DAO. And depending on what you do, I guess it doesn't really determine her outlook later in later games but you can meet a dwarf who begs you to get her to study at the circle of magi mm-hmm. and her name is dagna who does make a reappearance in dragon age inquisition as your enchanter mm-hmm. so let's talk about dagna Yes, so our side character is Dagna, and I really love Dagna in Origins. Um, I just thought she was so cute and so spunky, and I was like, of course I'll go to the circle for you. I'll turn around right now and do it. Right. Um, so I really like her, but let's talk about her family history and background a little bit. So... According to Dagna's father, her family has been part of the Smith cast for over a hundred generations. Wow. And Dagna doesn't give two craps about this lineage. Um, she doesn't want to be a Smith. She doesn't want to be restricted to Orzammar. And she feels really misunderstood. And so she is obsessed almost with any newcomer that comes to Orzammar. And so that's when she kind of begs the hero of Ferelden to help her travel to the Circle of Magi to study magic. And of course, this is a weird request because we know that dwarves cannot do magic. Um, she cannot use magic. But she wants to learn about it to help her understand Lyrium better, 
to help her understand, you know, runes and magical items better, um, all this kind of stuff. So she has really big dreams, and I love that. She definitely, and like you see the, just the passion. I think I feel a lot of empathy with like Dagna because, you know, we've all kind of been that thing where, you know, we have a dream or we have something that we want to do and we want to do it so badly that we would give anything to do it. And like Dagna kind of personifies that for us. Mm, That's so true. That desire to like, I will do anything to do this. Yeah, that's so true. And she's willing to, she, she is willing to do anything because she gives up everything to do this. She gives up her status um, in Orzammar. She, you know, becomes a surface dwarf. Her father does not support her leaving. And like, if you do the quest and uh, help her leave, he just like, every time you go in his store, he basically won't talk to you and just yells at you to get out. Right. Um, so she gives up everything. She gives up her family. She probably gives up whatever money she had. I'm sure she didn't have enough because she is like a teenager and the circle would provide for her if she lived there. But, you know, I mean, she gives up everything, every relationship, every parental figure, every family friend, every sibling she has, even her religion, which, you know, that's a big deal. Like all these things, she's got to give them all up to go live among humans and elves um, on the surface. Right. And like, this is an important thing and we didn't, we actually didn't get to it in the episode, but I'll say it now. Um, If you're banished to the surface or you leave the surface and go back, you can never return to Orzammar. Like in origins, the only reason that you as a dwarf are able to return to Orzammar is because of your great warden status. Right. Right. Exactly. And like that's a, it's a huge deal. And it's like, it would be a huge step because she's basically saying, yeah, I'll never see my family. Right. And that's how you know it's, that's how you know it's so serious to her because she's willing to sacrifice all that. And like, yeah, we can talk this up to like teenage rebellion, but I really think that it goes so much deeper than that. Right. And like she comes to play this huge role and like what she learns and what she learns how to does can have big impacts on what you can accomplish in inquisition when she becomes your enchanter because it's dagna who develops the thing to break samson's armor or cracks the way to track um calpurnia calpurnia's like communication thing to find the old mage and like give you the needs to like make Calpurnia turn against Corypheus you know Mm -hmm. it's all these things that you can get and like Dagna is the one who helps you do that right and I know that like the a lot of people were upset that you know we didn't have Sandal to be our enchantment person in Inquisition but like I for one love the addition of Dagna and like seeing the end result of like she did learn to go really deal with magic. Yeah, and she 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 has some real accomplishments. Like she writes this um apparently the epilogue if you if you help her the epilogue states that she writes a quote comprehensive theory of how lyrium vapors relate to the supply of magic. 
Um, so she writes this huge paper, and then she becomes she you know she becomes the arcanist at in the Inquisition. And in between that, you know, she works at several different circles, and um, she even goes to Tevinter and and the Free Marches, and you know, then she makes herself all the way over uh, back to Ferelden into the Inquisition. But you know, she's got some real skills. Like she's not just this unique person that's like, oh, okay, cool. Like you're you're a dwarf that's interested in magic. Like, okay, you're a token interesting person. No. Like she's actually really good at what she does. Um right. And I think I was just gonna say, like, so what she ends up doing is Ivring basically says, Oh, she can come study with the Tranquil, which if you didn't know, Tranquil in the circle of Magi study enchantment and how yeah. to enchant weapons, armor, or other items. So, like, Dagna goes and she learns with the Tranquil, which I just think is funny because she's so spunky and, like... And animated. And animated <laughs> to go and just sit with a bunch of Tranquil. I know. I would just love to see that in a sitcom. Like, that would be hilarious. That would... I can, like, literally see it now. Like, oh, my gosh. That would be so funny. Anyway. And, like, they, they talk about, like, that you know, her work rivals that of um, all of the great enchanters of the circle. And Dagna, and I think what helps Dagna in this is her knowledge of smithing. Like, ironically, the fact that she comes from the smith cast helps her. I agree with that. Yes. Understand enchantment better. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else about Dagna? I know we both really love her. We do. Um, well, thank you for lifting up the two things about Samson and Calpurnia. I was going to mention those. Um, and then there's a couple other things. If the Inquisitor does not romance Sarah, then Sarah and Dagna enter into a relationship. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, I really like that. Um, and then she is... She makes an appearance in Tevinter Nights in, um, I think it's the chapter Callback. So basically what happens is that she becomes part of the reinforcements that Sutherland and his company um, are, they go back to Skyhold. There's like a demon there. And so Dagna goes with them to kind of fight this demon. Um, and so she appears in that and then I just, I have one little quote that I wanted to um, lift up from Dagna. And she says, there's no barriers to what magic can do, Inquisitor, no matter what they say. And I just really like that. I think that that perfectly sums up Dagna's personality. Right. I really hope that we get some kind of interaction between her and uh, Volta. Mm-hmm. And that, like... The implications of what happens at the end of the Descent DLC, I think, are huge for the Dwarven people, um, especially because we basically, even the Inquisitor can say, like, did you just use magic? Like, um, and it just will be interesting mm -hmm. to see that interplay. And I would just think that, like, it would be interesting to see the dynamic between the two. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I'll be really interested to see 
what they do with both Dagna and Volta in Dragon Age 4. Because I do think there is potential for them to open the door to dwarves being able to practice magic between the two of them. Right. Do you have anything else about Dagna? I don't. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, We'll continue our dwarven talk in our part two while we talk about Kal Shirak, which will be a lot of interesting things coming your ways. Um, So yeah, we'll see you next time on the Dragon Age Lorecast. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at dalorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time. How well do you know your video game lovers? Have you ever wondered how your video game bays stack up against all the other delectable digital dates? I'm Genesis, the girl whose motto in life is love, laugh, tequila. And on Two Girls, One Ship, we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. And I'm Vervada, the hopeless romantic cat lady and lifelong gamer. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of physical connection. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters, using specific in-game dialogue and the overall narrative journey. So join the two girls, one ship, shipsters, and remember... Beauty is in the eye of the controller.